Welcome to the Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. I'm Tom Gilligan, Director of the Hoover Institution. For more than a century, the Hoover Institution and world-renowned library and archives have been collecting knowledge and generating ideas that support the pursuit of freedom and endeavor to improve the human condition. We've been able to occupy an eminent place in the think tank landscape by maintaining a focus on scholarly and empirical research that asks bold questions, offers powerful solutions for policymakers, and advances ideas to improve people's lives. These briefings are just one of the many ways we are able to reach out and share some of the important work coming out of the institution. As a reminder, we'll be taking audience questions, and I encourage you to submit yours using the Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen. Today's discussion is with Ayan Hirsi Ali. Ayan is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and the founder of the AHA Foundation. From 2003 to 2006, she served as a member of the Dutch Parliament. She was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People of 2005, one of the Glamour Heroes of 2005, and Reader's Digest European of the Year for 2005. She is also a best-selling author of books entitled Infidel and a second book entitled Heretic, Why Islam Needs a Reformation Now. Well, again, Ion, thanks for being here today. We really appreciate you, you spending time with us. Tom, thank you. Thank you very much for having me, and thank you very much for doing this. Great. Uh, since we scheduled you to join us a few weeks ago, recent events seem to have been prompted, seem to have prompted a tipping point of sorts and led us to a national discussion on race and race relations. Uh, making our discussion on identity politics and its tribal branches very salient. As you know, our Hoover scholars are dedicated to rigorous empirical research. So let's start by defining some often politically charged terms that we hear in the current debate. What is identity politics? How should we understand it? Identity politics um, is, it, it, it's all about an attempt to, um, to emphasize your identity. Uh, and I'm talking about the immutable character traits um, such as race and gender and um, LGBT, um, just taking immutable character traits um, to advance political gain. Mm -hmm. um, I want, I, I know we'll soon talk about the word intersectionality uh, coined by a woman called Kimberly Crenshaw uh, sometime in the 1980s. And that's for instance, to say that the, in order to, um, to talk about your status as a person who is, first of all, it's to view the world as oppressor versus oppressed. Um, so your, your prism, the prism through which you view society is one that is centered around power. It's all about power relationships. And in that power relationship, you have those who have power and those who don't, those who are oppressed, and those who are victims. And identity politics is really all about that. It says that it is, it's, you are either an oppressor or you are oppressed because of your identity. Got it, got it. So just to, to clarify, for reasons of, uh, say, political um, organization or political achieving political object, objectives, identity politics is likely to gather people more by race, gender, sexual orientation, immutable characteristics of the individual, rather than, say, economic interest or geography or political jurisdiction, et cetera. That's point one. And point two is, Identity politics it really looks at 
and features prominently in their analysis the power relationships that exist amongst people in different uh, identity groups. Is that fair to say? That, yes, that's fair to say, yeah. Got it. And then uh, what your experience in, in life has been ex expressly inter inter interwoven with tribalism and tribalism in Africa. Tell us a little about your experience with tribalism and how's, how, why is that a relevant uh, feature for trying to understand the current American political scene? So when I started to look into um, these ideas and really ideology around identity politics and um, its uh, vocabulary, it reminded me of tribalism. Um, because again, if, you, if you're a member of a tribe, if you've ever lived in Africa, the Middle East, uh, really pretty much outside of the West, your identity is determined by your tribe or your clan, the group that you belong to. And the group that you belong to demands that you're loyal, 100%. Mm -hmm. But implicit in that loyalty is that we are very often on a hostile footing with the other, the other collective, the other tribes. Um, and it's very interesting when you read uh, the literature produced by those who are proponents of identity politics, that they're pushing us back into tribalism. Mm -hmm. When we formed nation states, I think it was an attempt to move away from tribes and to get to some kind of, you know, um, a society where the relationship between individuals and groups is one where we all identify with the nation and are loyal to the nation, it's called patriotism. But that patriotism, so we took patriotism away from the tribe and gave it to the nation. And the United States is this huge country, over 340 million people, it's heterogeneous. And the idea is that we are loyal to the nation, to the idea of what America is. Mm -hmm. Identity politics wants to take us back to that micro collective of the tribe or the clan. Um, where you just assume that, first of all, we're collectives mm -hmm. and not individuals, and that the other collective, the other tribe, mm -hmm. um, is uh, sinister and somehow want to, um, they want the worst for us, so we better be prepared. So you're, there's a level of distrust in a tribal society that is impossible to sustain, say, in a democracy like ours. Got it. If you just joined us, I'm Tom Gilligan, and this is the Hoover Institution's Virtual Policy Briefing with Ion Hersey-Ali. Ion, what are some of the long-term risks associated with tribalism and identity politics in the United States? Well, if you look at tribal societies, what you see, it really is, the biggest problem is fragmentation. It's this distrust. Tribes don't trust one another. You go to the top of society, because if who you know within your tribe, you either belong to a powerful tribe or you belong to a somewhat weaker tribe or maybe a tribe that's um, very much oppressed. Mm -hmm. We have in countries like India, we have outcasts. I come from Somalia. There are tribes and clans that just don't make the cut, uh, mm -hmm. are still enslaved, by the way. Now, if in the United States, we go down the path of identity politics, the danger, the implication is that we are going to fragment our already polarized society. 
not along the lines of individuals coming together and associating and organizing around their common interest, but associating and organizing and being expected to do that along these immutable biological traits such as skin color, gender, um, LGBTQ, um, and, 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 I, and I think that is the wrong path to go down. How do you, let me push back on that, Anand. how do you respond to the idea that um, identity politics or this, this uh, neo-tribalism is encouraged by people's view that the system is set up in ways that engender systemic racism or institutional racism or doesn't promote equality of opportunity across people based on race, gender, sexual preference, et cetera? I think the most powerful way to push back against this is to emphasize our common humanity, which is what the United States Constitution does and the United States founding principles of freedom of equality. Again, this is a utopia. We haven't attained full freedom. We haven't achieved full equality. We, it's, we are a dynamic society. We continue to try over and over and over again. But what is going to get us there are our founding principles of liberty, of capitalism, of freedom of religion, of freedom of speech, of academic freedom. It's these principles and these values that are going to get us to become closer and closer again because these values emphasize our common humanity. Mm-hmm. The fact that you and I, doesn't matter male, female age class, we are, to begin with, we're humans. And mm-hmm. to recognize us as individuals and to protect our rights and our freedoms as individuals, it's these universal principles that I think will get us out of the muck and it is the way to proceed. It is the way to stand up to the proponents of identity politics, of segregation, of fragmentation. And this is the only way we, and the way to do it is to appeal to the common American, the average American. It's a common sense thing now. And it doesn't matter what your skin color is. The principles of freedom and equality are far more appealing, mm-hmm. far more attractive than what Black Lives Matter as an organization is pushing forward today and the other organizations that are dedicated to identity politics. Just to understand your position, you, you don't quibble with the demands for, of social justice and equality for people based on race and gender, et cetera. You just think they're better achieved through a universalistic system than through a tribalistic or identity politics system. I, I am committed to social justice for everyone, every individual, regardless of their color, their gender, and where they're born. That is the idea of America. Remember when America was founded, people left Europe because these social hierarchies were set in stone. You yeah. could, there was almost no social mobility. In some places, none at all. Mm-hmm. And when people started coming to America from different classes and different countries, they, had, they found the freedom to pursue their happiness. This continues to this day. America is still the most attractive destination for all humans anywhere. And I think when you want to achieve, and if you want to promote the idea of social justice, you're going to have to start with the idea that every individual, regardless of where they come from, will have an opportunity to try to pursue 
their happiness. That's what America represents for the world. And yeah. these proponents of identity politics are against that because they're emphasizing our differences, not our commonality. Yeah. Um, and we have a question. This is just a clarifying question on what identity is, what it means in identity politics. Rich asks, is religion a tribe or an identity? Is, is our, our religious beliefs a sense of identity for us? Or how do you, or is that distinct from identity that's based on an immutable concept like race, gender, sexual orientation, etc.? Human identity is complex. You are not just one thing. It's not just you're immutable, you're biological, you know, I'm female or black or um, it's very complex. It's also those people you choose to identify with. If you are born into a religion, religion is part of your identity. It's not the whole of it. To be black is not the skin color, is, is just a little part of who I am. It's not everything. That is how we should view it. And with this human complexity of who we are and where we come from and the accumulation of an age, I'm, my identity is now different now that I'm 50 from what it was when I was 25 and how I viewed the world and how I viewed myself in relation to the world. So this is, it's all very dynamic and we have this in America. But these yeah. proponents of identity politics are trying to push down our throats that right. we are not only different, but that it's all set in stone. And that if only we were to adopt their orthodoxy, if only we were to become a part of their cult, then only would we achieve social justice. Now, where have we seen that before? Do you remember those utopian ideologies, communism, socialism, national socialism? Human beings have been trying to do this for a long time, but it's what made America different. You didn't have to have one religion. You could have your own religion or no religion. Yeah, got it. And I know we have racism. I know we have problems and we have very big problems. We have huge problems of inequality, being the richest country in the world. Mm -hmm. But we are not going to find solutions to these problems with the frameworks and the political and policy propositions that the identity politics people are pushing. Yeah, let's, let's push on that a little bit. Uh, it's clear that the tenets or the values of identity politics are animated in current political discussions. Um, are those ideas uh, currently being ineffectively or improperly used to address critical policy issues? Let's take race. So after George, George Floyd's murder, we it, it really heightened and elevated and amplified the discussion around police reforms, including policies like defund the police, etc. cetera. Uh, do you think the values that are being imported through the idea of identity politics, is it helping the debate about how to reform policing to make it more, less, less discriminatory? Tom, what we saw, all of us, when we saw the video of the killing of George Floyd was, we, as a nation, we were collectively horrified. We were disgusted and we were outraged and it was absolutely justified. And we are seeking justice, not just for George Floyd, but indeed the underlying problems with the police and with the police force. We also, at the same time, those of us who are interested in finding solutions, we also value law enforcement. We value the rule of law. The killer of George Floyd is going through the justice system that we've built. 
the identity politics people want to bring the whole thing down. They want to abolish the police. They're saying they want the police defunded. Now, that is going to harm more blacks, more poor people, more women who are victims of domestic violence than anyone else. So, again, the common American, the average American, is going to look for answers in a very practical, solution-oriented approaches. What can we do to reform the police, to make the police better? What can we do to make the social conditions of African-Americans, and in particular African-American men, better? How, what can we do to improve that? We're going, we can have a conversation along those lines. But the identity politics people who have as their umbrella Black Lives Matter is not interested in that. Yeah. Yeah. They want to bring the system down. And what is unfortunate is that many of us are sitting down. We are just simply too frightened. We're frightened because we're seeing people being removed from their jobs, people being ostracized, mm -hmm. people being called racist. So anyone who might have to offer a valuable solution cannot because who wants to be fired from their jobs? Yeah. Who wants to touch this? Yeah. Uh, and here's an interesting question that leads into an even bigger idea. Andrew asks, in the past, I've heard demands for educational and career opportunities uh, characterizing social justice. In other words, career and educational equality of opportunities has to be a hallmark of social justice. Today, it's focused on the police and a right to take what's yours. He put that in quote, right to take. What's happened? And I guess I'll put the, his, Andrew's question in a broader question about reparations. Uh, Financial payments to African-Americans has been lifted up again as a way to ameliorate some of the social injustice and harm that was done to them through the institution of slavery. Um, that appears to be uh, an argument that comes, you know, out of, out of torts and retributive justice, but also out of identity politics. What do you think about Andrew's question and the advisability of a notion like reparations for advancing social justice in America? What I'd like to say to Andrew is, yes, it's still the common sense approach. If you want to lift yourself out of poverty, and if you want to lift others out of poverty, you invest in education, education, education. Obviously, it depends on what kind of education. We have to make a distinction between education and indoctrination, mm -hmm. which is, I think, what our universities and higher education systems for a while have been doing now is they were not educating young minds. They were indoctrinating them with this nonsense. Now, the reparations story and uh, the, you know, America's irredeemably racist uh, and all white people, especially all white men are to blame for everything that goes wrong, not just in America, but in the entire world. I think that narrative distracts. It distracts from the conditions of poor people it doesn't help. What it does is it empowers those people with an agenda who are using the misfortunes of black Americans, of women, of transgender people to find power for themselves. And as just the general public, I, I, I'm a member of the general public. I look at these things, I read about, and I'm interested and excited by the people who have to offer solutions perspective, things that have worked in some communities, maybe in other countries, but if they come along and they say, 
and they just keep saying, talking about slavery. Let's talk about slavery. There are still countries in the world where there are slaves. There's modern day slavery where people are exploited and trafficked in and prostituted. Why are they not talking about today, 2020 slavery, and keep harping on what happened 200 years ago when in fact that slavery has been abolished. We've had a civil war of it. We've had the civil rights movement. We've had riots. We've had all sorts of things. Are we going to say we've achieved nothing? That's what the identity politics people are saying. They're saying we've achieved nothing. You are guilty of implicit bias. You are racist. And if you say I'm not, that proves that you're racist. How stupid is that? Who's going to take that? And we're too frightened to say anything. Hmm. And that bothers me. Yeah. Uh, John asked a question. You touched on it briefly, Ion, but I want you to dig into it deeper. He asked, what has been the role of academia in the promotion of identity politics? And when you're talking about the academy, could you also talk about recent decisions that have been made by the UC system, by Harvard, and other prominent universities to no longer require merit tests like the SAT or the ACT as a condition of admission based on the argument that they were biased tests or they were tests that gave unfair advantage or discriminated against racial minorities? Well, the short answer is yes. Identity politics was born and raised and nurtured and cultivated on our campuses. And we've been paying tons of money sending our children to these Ivy League institutions for them to be brainwashed into thinking that identity politics is the way the world works and that white children are told they're racist and black children are told they're victims of racism or white. This is divisive. When it comes to meritocracy, we all understand, those of us who've had the fortune to pull ourselves out of conditions of adversity, that meritocracy is the answer. And so the United States of America as a society for a very long time was in fact very, very serious about merit and meritocracy. I talk about tribalism because when I, when I lived in Africa, it really didn't matter what you could or couldn't do. Most tribes were prepared to promote and push forward members of their tribe. And if you wanted to get anywhere, you appealed to the leadership of your tribe to say, can you get me this job? Can you get me that business? Can you get me this loan? We call it corruption. It's well documented. Mm -hmm. In America, we have corruption. We have racism. We have all of these other problems. But in comparison to the rest of the world, they are small. And we have a population that is actually, if you talk to most people, they're actually interested in trying to find a solution, solutions for the problems we have. We have think tanks, we have organizations like the Hoover Institution, where people come together and say, okay, here's the problem we have. How do we solve it? People start to give you their perspectives. That is unique and it's something to be proud of. And it's very American and it's not in the least racist. It's the opposite. Yeah. Ion, Ellen Fox asks the following question. She says, I agree with what you're saying. What's the best way for us as Americans, as average Americans, to promote and support social mobility for those facing barriers? For example, barriers in, in obtaining school, proper schooling, uh, other uh, opportunities that might help them advance. What are, what are some good policy solutions that you and us as average Americans should, should think about and encourage our lawmakers to adopt? You know, politics is local. Communities are local. 
human beings are local. If in your family, in your neighborhood, in your church, at your work, you see someone who's struggling, who's vulnerable, who wants help, please, by all means, go ahead and do that. Mentor. Um, try and pay. There's someone here on this audience whom I'm not going to name who has decided to get to dedicate um, money to paying the school fees of African-Americans, right? You can do that. And it's anonymous. She doesn't need to go around boasting, I'm doing this. She does it. And she's not the only one. There are many people who are doing that. That's what you can do on the individual level. Mm-hmm. There are people here in the audience I know who are mentoring not only African-American children, but anybody who is disadvantaged in their neighborhood. Why, does, why do you need to have a skin color to, you know, to be admitted into help? It's happening. There are lots and lots of Americans who are helping one another. There's a great deal of philanthropy and goodwill that is happening in America. And then there are policy issues. That is legislation and the allocation of resources, that's taxpayer money, into big problems that we as individuals can't solve. And yes, we have our debates, we have our discussions about how to allocate, what kind of legislation we need to put in place, what interest groups are going to be served and what are not going to be served. Conversations we need to have, conversations we have, but we've got to take this whole race thing out of it. That's interesting. Dory, Dory asked a related question. She says, and I know that you've had, you've been vilified in, by some for talking about these difficult issues. Dory asked the following question. What are your suggestions on how we begin conversations reflective of your ideas on the humanity of us all versus the tenets of identity politics that will be accepted reasonably without being branded racist, etc.? You have to understand that vilification is the currency you and I might want to have a discussion, we might want to argue, we might want to push evidence and evidence-based solutions. But the people who are pushing identity politics are not interested in that. Vilification is their currency. So if we adopt the position, what can I do so that I am not labeled a racist? What can I do so I'm not labeled a house Negro or an Uncle Tom? What can I do so that I appear virtuous to the rest of the world? That's not going to work for them because what they want you to do is they want you to subscribe, to convert to their ideology. Mm-hmm. And if you, in any way, shape, you know, you look at the world and you say, I see something different, they're going to vilify you. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about Roland Fryer. African-American professor, uh, himself a victim of police brutality. He looks into it. He writes a paper that is peer-reviewed. And what do they do? They don't look at the research. They vilify him. And it doesn't matter if you're black or white. If you deviate from their orthodoxy, they're going to vilify you. So perhaps now is the time to say, we're just simply going to ignore that. And it's the fast way to push back is to show them that that vilification, the accusation that you're racist, doesn't make a point. Mm-hmm. What has been used way too many times that it has no meaning at all whatsoever. Yeah. Hardly any good conversation starts with you're a racist. 
Yeah, not faces. Walter, Walter asked the following question. What, what role do you see the news media play in propagating identity politics in America? Well, the, uh, if you look at what's happening and what's been happening in the last few weeks, you see these um, internal disputes going on and within um, the newsrooms, uh, within our free press. And it's really absolutely tragic to see how editors-in-chief who even have pushed back in the slightest, not with their own opinions, but for instance, by publishing the opinions of others have been ousted, they've been removed. It is really tragic to see that the free press of the United States of America is struggling, really struggling to contain this movement, um, identity politics, woke, woke is the new word for them, uh, pushing out experienced, um, I would say the, one of, some of the most and the best critical thinkers um, in our press are being pushed out and we are sitting back and we are scared to say, we can't say anything. Now, mm -hmm. social media has not helped in this. Yeah. In, in some ways with social media, yes, you, you can reach the general public, but it's now become, it's just, it's become something so uh, divisive and, and, and toxic. And I mean, we're all at the point of saying, um, we don't know, maybe, you know, if you review and reflect on what has social media done for us, in the end, we might end up saying, maybe that wasn't so good after all. Yeah. Uh, Ion, here's a, here's a hard question that, that's asked by both Lori Holzberg and Arthur, and it fundamentally has to do with uh, uh, President Trump. I think President Trump is contributing uh, uh, towards a productive conversation to try to address racial inequalities in the country. You know, I try to stay away from that. And uh, why do I do that? We had an election in 2016. We had an outcome. Tom, as you know, there are many scholars at the Hoover Institution, we're all trying to reflect on what happened in 2016 and how deep-seated is that. I find that conversation way more interesting. What the president, Donald Trump, has come to symbolize. Mm -hmm. And for so many people, he's got, I mean, listen, how many uh, critical pieces and how much criticism um, has been expressed about Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. I've never seen anything like that in my life. What, what, what do I have to add to that? Yeah. Mr. President, please don't tweet. Mr. <laughs> President, please, do you think he will listen? No. But yeah. what, is, what I find is much deeper and more lasting is that we have used Mr. Trump's presidency as an excuse to do away with our own decency, to do away with some of our founding principles. And I think that's way more dangerous than something that, you know, we're going to have another election, for heaven's sake. Mm -hmm. Calm down. Yeah. What, let's, let's talk about organizations that are trying to address racial justice in the country. What organizations are doing good work uh, from your point of view? There are so many organizations in our country that are doing good work. Um, when it comes to the specifically African-American, um, 
I would like to highlight Bob Woodson, uh, his 1776 project, African-American, 80-something uh, years old. He has experience like Shelby Steele and Thomas Sowell. Um, he, he was in, lived in America when there was real racism, real segregation. This was set in the law. Um, and these people have come out of it and have then set up, as Bob Woodson has done, organizations to educate to lift up um, young African-American children, but also to reach out to white people in general and say, this is, this is what connects us. This is what makes us human. This is what makes America unique. Um, and to stand up to, um, stand up to the uh, identity politics people, the woke people. Ayan, we have a, a, a couple personal questions here. Uh, you can answer them or not. Eduardo asks, how do you find the bravery to express publicly unpopular opinions concerning social issues? And Jerry asks, will you be writing a new book articulating your amazing views on identity politics? I don't know if I should write a new book on identity politics because um, it, uh, these books have been written, right, that are critical of identity politics. Jonathan Haidt has done a very good job of that. Many, many, many sensible, rational Americans. Um, I want to highlight people like Coleman Hughes, who's African-American. Um, Heather McDonald, uh, who has really worked over years and years at the Manhattan Institute on police, the relationship between African-Americans and the police, it's, it's, it's all out there for you to see. I don't know if I have anything new to add to the idea of identity politics, except highlight from my experience in tribal nations that I recognize it uh, in two ways. Identity politics is simultaneously tribal and socialist. Should I, will I, does it need an entire book? I don't know. I don't think so. I think it's quite obvious. I think it's really now time we just have, let's go back to common sense. Yeah. What um, about Eduardo's question on how do you muster the bravery to express, express unpopular opinions? I know you're quite passionate about this. Where, where, do you, where does the passion come from? I mean, bravery. I don't know if it's brave to just state the obvious, honestly. <laughs> how, you know, what, so what I'm being asked as a black female living in the United States of America in 2020 is to denounce all my white friends as racist and to denounce the entire system that has sustained all these people and has moved on. I mean, look at our, if you look at our common humanity, you'll see how far we've come. Uh, put, it, put that in a timeline and see how we've come. And I'm comparing it. I'm comparing the United States right now to China to India, to Russia, uh, different countries in Europe, to Africa. I look at what this country has achieved in the short time that it has been a nation state. It's so obvious, it's staring me in the face. You don't need courage. You don't need to be brave to look up and say, oh, the sky is blue. Yeah. America is a great nation and I love it. We have our problems and we have loads of them. But I think the way to go about solving them is the old American way, evidence-based, emphasis on freedom, and the appeal of equality is huge, but it is something that we work towards. Yeah. And we'll end with the following question by John, which has to do with what is your view of the future of American society, given the seemingly increasing divisiveness 
in the streets? Will it get worse before it gets better? Are you optimist, optimistic or pessimistic about the future? Uh, I'm, I'm optimistic uh, if we wake up. And again, I really have to emphasize, we do have, yes, we talked a lot these past few weeks about reforming our police, but I think we have to reform our institutions of education, especially our institutions of higher education, the universities. I think we need to come together and say, how on earth did we allow for 35 years, maybe longer, to have these people come in and take the most brilliant, the brightest, but also impressionable young minds and manipulate and pollute their minds to come to believe that we are irredeemably racist. How did that happen? How, did we ha how are we having young people graduate from Ivy League universities in the United States of America and are promoting socialism? What have we been doing? Where have we been? So as parents, as donors, as the general public, we have to start looking very quickly into these um, institutions of higher education and the most urgent thing is to reform them. I've been getting emails that Dr. Seuss, Dr. Seuss is a racist. Seriously? Hmm. That's how far we've come. And so you can't read Dr. Seuss anymore. Got can't it. read Shakespeare anymore. Can't read Homer anymore. Well, I'm sure there'll be plenty to read, and I'm sure you're going to produce it. So uh, I really appreciate Alan, you being here today. Thank you for the time this morning, and thanks for the important discussion. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you. Our next Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing will be Tuesday, June 23rd at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern Time with political scientist and education scholar Terry Moe, who will be talking about the future of education reform and its politics. Terry is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor of political science at Stanford University. You can join Tuesday's briefing at the same link that you signed in on. And you will find the Hoover Institution online at hoover.org and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I want to thank you all for joining us today and encourage you all to have a wonderful weekend. Goodbye. <laughs>